Welcome to the Actors Room. We're back. Episode number two. Episode title, Marlon Brando. Oh yes, we're going to talk about Brando. Can't wait. Good stuff. Here we go. My name is Jeff Tarowski, and welcome back once again to another episode of The Actors Room. And today, we talk about Marlon Brando. Born April 3rd, 1924, parents, Marlon Brando Sr., that makes Marlon a junior, and his mother's name was Dorothy Pennebaker, nicknamed Dodie. We're going to talk a little bit about Marlon Sr. first. Let's see. His mother passed away when he was pretty young, so his dad had to raise him on his own. He didn't do very well doing that, struggled, so he left Marlon Sr., little Marlon Sr., with aunts. That would be his sisters. But Marlon Sr. was left with the aunts, and from what I've read, They sort of babied him a lot. They curled his hair, dressed him up in little outfits. That would do a little bit of damage, I would assume. So he was a shy, withdrawn little boy. And there's a story that because he was so shy, didn't have many friends, there was this party at school. I think he was about 12, 13 at the time. And there's this party at school that he really wanted to go to, wasn't invited. Most of the class was invited, but Senior wasn't. So what did he do? He got all dressed up, bought a gift, went to the party anyway. Knocked on the door. Well, the host opens the door and casually says, What are you doing here? And without flinching, Marlon Sr. said, You're a silly fool. Here's your gift. Goodbye. So that's a story that Jocelyn told. And Jocelyn is Marlon Jr.'s sister, his older sister. And you know what? From now on, we're going to call Marlon Brando Bud, and this will put a distinction between him and his father. So from now on, whenever you hear me say Bud, that means Marlon Jr. And this is a nickname that he had through his entire lifetime. His grandmother, Bessie, gave him this nickname, and he didn't mind it. He actually liked being called Bud. So from now on, it's going to be Bud. So Marlon Sr., Touched on him a little bit. So there's a lot of vengeance in his mind, I think. You know, and that story is a pretty good example of just how he had a bit of a complex. So not being invited to parties and so on and so forth really pissed him off. And he had vengeance on his mind. And from what I gather, he wanted to succeed in business and make a lot of money. Make his mark. Make the big deal. So this was sort of something on his mind and he carried throughout his lifetime. He's a tough guy, and he wants to make a lot of money. So that's Marlon Sr. Dodie, Marlon's, sorry, Bud's mom, was described as vivacious, beautiful, and talented. And she lost her father when she was two years old. And one of her very first memories is reaching out for her father, while he died in his bed. So she ended up meeting Marlon Sr. when she was 15 years old in high school. So they were two years apart because Marlon Sr., two years older, so he was 17 at that time. And they're really two different kind of people. You have Marlon Sr., who was very tough, hard-nosed, with revenge on his mind, very strict, handsome, and then you had Dodie, who is very graceful and beautiful and talented and just of free will. And those two will show you that opposites attract. So they married in 1918, and they had three kids. Oldest, daughter, Jocelyn, then Fran, and then Bud. Bud grew up as a little boy in Nebraska. Senior was a mineral salesman, and he did very well. 
so well, he worked seven days a week and was hardly ever home. Did a lot of business trips, and being away, Doty started to drink. And this became a huge problem in the family, if you know anything about Bud. He grew up in a household uh, with two parents that were alcoholics. Now, it's hard enough when you have one alcoholic parent, but when you have two, it creates a lot of problems. So, Bud would mimic animals when he was a child to gain his mother's attention. And he became very good at imitating like they they live on a farm at one point, so he would do his best to imitate all the farm animals and so on. And she got a kick out of it, and her face would light up, and he would get a reaction. So that was a, a, a little insight on the very beginnings of how Marlon Brando would use his talent in that way to gain attention. Uh, Marlon Sr. was cheating on his wife when he would go on these little business trips, and this was well known in the family. So it made Dodie drink even more. And it would reach a point where she wouldn't come home. So Bud and his sisters would have to go out, find her in the morning. Uh, it could be at a bar. It could be at somebody's house. You know, I don't even know how that works. Like, if she passed out in a bar that night, would, like, the bar owner let her stay in some room or something? I mean, I'm not really sure how that all worked out, but I guess... That's what they did. So they would have to go looking for her, which is very embarrassing. So you can only imagine what Bud went through. Bud and his sisters went through when he was a child. And it was also said that because she wouldn't come home, she would keep all of like the peanut butter and things that the kids would eat on the lower shelves so that they wouldn't have to wait on someone so they can eat. Very sad. Um, although Dodie was drinking a lot, she still managed to go out and socialize. And this is something she really loved to do. She loved to join all sorts of clubs and rub elbows with a lot of uh, people that she was interested in. And one of the things that she did was she joined the Omaha Playhouse. And there's a story that a very young Henry Fonda was also a part of this playhouse. And his father wanted him to get a normal job, go to college, and... He didn't want to. He wanted to act. He loved it. So it got, I think there was a point in the relationship with Fonda's father and himself that reached a boiling point. And Henry Fonda was depressed and he wasn't satisfying his father and felt that he had no direction. Well, the story is that Dodie went over there and had a really nice talk with Henry Fonda's father and convinced him that, listen, your son is talented. There is no doubt about it. You let him follow his heart, and I guarantee you, you won't be disappointed. So she was a driving force in getting Henry Fonda to follow his dream and to become one of the greatest actors of all time. So I think that's a pretty interesting story right there, that Bud's mom was a big factor in the Fonda family legacy. So, little tidbit there. And Marlon Sr. would actually help out in productions, like picking up a hammer and building sets, things like that. And it was also noted that he was a stage manager in one of the performances. I can only imagine... <laughs> I can't imagine, actually, him... He was kind of hard to get along with, so I I guess that he would be stern enough to, you know, give direction and tell people what to do. I think he was pretty good at doing that, so I guess from that aspect, I'm, I'm sure he did a fine job, but I'm sure there are stories about that. Oh, gosh. So, at this time, you have Dodie doing plays, uh, drinking, socializing, spending a lot of time away from home, and then you have Senior being this big salesman, wanting to stretch his territory, being away on business all the time. So you had the kids being on their own a lot. From what I understand, there was a housekeeper named Ermi. Now, Ermi is actually noted in Marlon Brando's own autobiography. Now, he opens up his book talking about this housekeeper, this Ermi. And he loved her. And from what I get... This was like his first love. And, I mean, even in his book, I mean, he talks about being like, I think he was around four or five years old. And this housekeeper was probably, I want to say, 17 years old. 
And he talks about getting up in the middle of the night, slipping out of bed, and, and going into her bed naked and laying next to her. And it's really weird. Like He talks about how the the moonlight was coming in out of the you know the window was hitting it was hitting her body and it was a, it was beautiful and it was the most gratifying sexual experience you ever had and i and i'm like this is from brando himself you you read his autobiography and you will see what he's talking about this ermy i couldn't imagine some little kid crawling into bed with a teenager and he says like he climbed on top of her and i I mean, that's just weird stuff. I mean, he talks about it freely in his book. So just getting a little bit of insight on his childhood is just, was so unorthodox. It wasn't your average run-of-the-mill family, uh, something completely different from what I grew up with. And maybe that's why I'm so fascinated with Brando is because his whole life is something that I just don't understand. And I find it fascinating because it's way different from what I grew up with. Bud was getting in trouble at school. Teachers say he walked into class with a scowl, and oftentimes he walked in with dirty clothes and looked like he'd been in a fight, which was very common. In the schoolyard, he would defend his honor, he said, and also other little kids that got picked on. And one of those little kids was Wally Cox. Now, I don't know if you know who Wally Cox is, but he was a pretty big TV star. And he met Marlon Brando when he was a kid there in Illinois. And they stayed friends for their entire lifetimes. Uh, Wally Cox's lifetime, anyway. And Brando says that Wally Cox, if he were a woman, I would have married him. So that's saying something right there. He thought a lot about Wally. They would talk about all sorts of stuff. Anything and everything under the sun, they tried to find out the meaning of life together. Okay, so Senior eventually gets a promotion. So the family moves out to Illinois. Bud and his father would get into a lot of fights, mostly because of Bud's grades. They were very bad, and he wanted Bud to be a good student. You know, how is my son going to be good in business if he can't get good grades? So this really bothered him. So Bud and Senior fought a lot, and Dodie and Senior fought a lot as well. In their drunken stupor, raised voices, neighbors complained, and it was very embarrassing for the children. A story is that Bud, one night, this little kid, got up, took all the empty beer bottles that his parents drank that night, went outside with them, and lined them up on the curb. This was a little act that a kid does to get attention. Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. Really sick and tired of you. And the way you act and the way you're drunk all the time and just very embarrassing. And there you go. This a little insight on what Bud did to get attention from his parents. Bud would also take in homeless people. And there's one story that has him taking in a homeless woman. And uh, I guess the homeless woman stayed with them for a few days. And it got to the point where Jocelyn and the housekeeper figured out that this lady was absolutely insane and needed to get out of the house. So, you know, they they convinced Bud to said, listen, Bud, she's going to have to go away. You know, she's not well. We're going to take her to the hospital. So Bud was very concerned and made sure that she got taken care of and everything was okay. Um, we'll move ahead a little bit to uh, Bud being around uh, 12 and 13 at this time. His mom decided that summer camp would be a nice idea. So she took the whole family. And his first play was A Midsummer's Night's Dream, his very first performance. And uh, the cast members found out that Bud had a knack for doing accents. He just, he loved the, I guess there was uh, one of the cast members was uh, Southern, had a Southern accent, and he just loved it. He loved uh, mimicking her and kind of making fun of her, but it was all in good fun, and he was really good at it. The family would eventually purchase a farmhouse. They'd have cows and dogs, um, and one of the dogs 
was Dutchy, and uh, he talks about Dutchy in his book. And he loved that dog. He played with it a lot. And uh, he went to Libertyville High School. And in high school, classmates described him as very mature, even for a senior. He just carried himself in a very mature way. He wore t-shirts and jeans instead of the casual slacks that kids wore at that time. And uh, he's classified as being depressed. He was also always aware he was performing. He used gestures and his beauty. He loved animals, read T.S. Eliot, Shakespeare, and Fitzgerald. He also dipped into Eastern religion. And in his sophomore year, he was vice president of Curtain Raisers. Now, Curtain Raisers was a drama club. And I found this out because I went to classmates.com. And if you don't know what classmates.com is, you're missing out. I love that site. And a big reason why I love that site is because they post yearbooks on there. And it's great. I'm a yearbook guy. I can't find my yearbooks right now. And it just pisses me off because I love my yearbooks. And I moved about a year ago. And I can't find them. And it's driving me crazy. I'm hoping that one day I'm going to be looking for something. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, my, my yearbooks. But right now I can't find them. So I'm waiting for classmates.com to upload my yearbook. But they don't have it right now. So anyway, I went to classmates.com. And I found his sophomore yearbook. It was pretty cool. So I went in there and I saw that he was vice president of Curtain Raisers. Pretty cool. And you see his picture. He's standing with the rest of the drama club and you also get to see uh fran which is his uh older sister as well he had two older sisters was jocelyn who was the oldest and fran who was the second oldest and they were two years apart so she's a senior this is her senior yearbook and she was actually a pretty good student she and another student were the top two in a proficiency test that they took that year and there's a picture of her and they talk about how she did really well on the test so you know she wanted to impress her dad, I think. That was a, a big deal for her, was to get good grades, and she did. So she did very well. Bud would use method of observation. This means that he would stare a lot. And now, there are classmates that said that uh, he made him feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, you know, they'd be in the locker, putting books away, stuff like that. And he would be at a comfortable distance. It's not like he was, you know, in their face staring at him, But, you know, he would be a ways back and just sort of lean up against the wall and watch people you know and that's what actors do uh it's called people watching it's it's kind of creepy but it's not like we're it's we don't want to be creepy it's just we enjoy watching human behavior uh it's fascinating just to take someone in you know see what they do see their little discrepancies uh and brando used that bud was probably one of the best at it he had a a way of just dissecting people because he watched them. He, he watched people move. He saw what their weaknesses were. So this observation thing went a long way with Marlon Brando and a long way in making him one of the best of all time. Uh, he enjoyed lifting weights uh, and he enjoyed playing the drums. He formed two bands when he was a kid. One of them was called Bud and the Kegliners. Uh, I guess they actually did have one gig and that was it. After the one gig, they disbanded. Bud showed signs of understanding dialogue, had natural excess energy, which he used for sex. I guess he lost his virginity at the age of 14 to the maid. He exuded great self-confidence. He was kicked out of Libertyville High School in his senior year. Now, he was kicked out because he was caught riding his motorcycle in the hallways. Now, I think that he was actually warned a few times before then. And there were other things that attributed to him being kicked out. And that was the big one. Riding his bicycle, motorcycle, not bicycle, motorcycle in the hallway. And kicked out of Libertyville High. And of course, Marlon Sr. was just thrilled about that. So um, there are a lot of fights. More fights. And he says to Bud... I'm sick and tired of you. You're going to military school. Now, Senior went to military school as well. And he's going to send Bud to the same school that he went to. It's called Shattuck. 
Shattuck Academy. Dodie felt responsible. She felt that if she would have kicked him in the ass a little bit more for getting good grades, maybe, just maybe, he would have shaped up enough or his grades would have been good enough and he wouldn't have slacked off. He didn't have to go to this damn military school. You know, Bud was just depressed. Uh, he, uh, he, his imaginative responses to life that were encouraged by Dodie were now seen as signs of worthlessness. So, standing at 5'8 and 144 pounds, he joined Shattuck Academy. He was very behind in his studies, and he was slightly dyslexic. His goal was to disrupt the routine as much as he could. Now, there's a story. That he stole silverware from the dining hall, okay, where they go eat. He stole all the silverware. Uh, he must have got up in the middle of the night, went into the dining hall, got the silverware, put it in bags, and hid it somewhere. So, anyways, when they went down to eat breakfast that morning, they had nothing to eat with. So, <laughs> they all had to sit there until the, um, the headmaster came in. And the headmaster's like, listen, this is what's going to happen. You're all going to get down and do push-ups. And you're going to do push-ups until the person who stole the silverware tells us where it is. So they all started doing push-ups. Ten minutes go by. Two kids collapse. And, you know, two, two more fainted. And it got to the point where Bud arms, they were getting tired. So he rolled over and said, I did it. I'll show you where it is. And the whole point of it was to disrupt the, the routine of Shattuck. He hated that structure. I mean, if there was one thing Bud loved was freedom. And being in this place was the exact opposite. So hiding that silverware, I guess, delayed everything that day by one hour. And a lot of other cadets really saw that as... Uh, kind of like a good thing. It, it was kind of like, wow, man, this guy really did something. You know, that that's hard to do. So throughout his whole time at Shattuck, he would do things like this. Uh, there's another story where Bud and three or four of his friends put alarm clocks. There had to be about four or five alarm clocks, okay, underneath the pews at church. Now, Shattuck Academy was a Catholic school so they were at mass and you probably had to go at least twice a week maybe even up to three or four I went to Catholic school as well and uh, we would go to church a lot uh, we would have uh, services in the middle of the week you know on Fridays for sure and then of course you would have to go on Sunday so a lot of church going on so I'm sure that was the way it was at the uh, Shattuck Academy so they had plenty of time to figure something out, something cute to do, and this is what they did. The alarm clocks were put underneath the pews, and each of them were about 10 minutes apart in uh, going off. So 10 minutes into the service, one went off. So I had to scurry around, find it, turn it off, resume the mass. 10 minutes later, another one goes off. So they had to find that one, turn that one off. So after this happened for the third time, they said, okay, that's it. Obviously, they're just going to keep going off. God only knows how many of these things are underneath, you know. What are we going to do? We're going to stop Mass. We can't move on. So that was really a, a victory for uh, Bud and his friends. And uh, another story is him and his friends would wait at the back of the line when they would go up to get the Eucharist, which is the, the bread of Christ, the wafer. And then they would also give wine to anybody that would want the wine. So they would stand at the very back at, at the end of the line so they wouldn't feel too bad about gulping down the rest of the wine and getting a little buzz. So there you go. There's a few little tidbits of what Bud did at the Shattuck Academy to get his, you know, to get his kicks. Um, he played football at Shattuck and actually did pretty well. He was a halfback, which means that uh, he had the ball a lot. And he scored touchdowns. And there was one time he was hot-dogging it and flailing the ball around, high-stepping, whatever you want to call it, and actually dropped the ball before it reached the goal line. 
Now, he was able to pick up the ball and still go into the end zone, but the coach had, you know, he was pissed off about that. Um, he was a, a, a pretty good football player, um, but he would argue with the coach about technique and things like that. But overall, he enjoyed playing football. His grades, not so good. Here's his first report card. English, 54. History, 50. Language, 60. Math, 50. So, as you can see, he did the best was language, the 60. My God. That's like my grades. Okay. Earl Wagner was his director because he did, of course, join the theater at Shattuck. And Earl Wagner was his director. And here you go. Here's his first critique. And quote, Seems to be taking hold very well with this difficult role. He expresses great interest to interpret the conception of the part. End quote. So there you go. Um, nice. It's a nice critique. Uh, his director noticed potential. And uh, yeah, uh, it's a nice little quote. Thanksgiving came around and Dodie and Senior visited the school. And this is when Dodie had a little heart-to-heart with Bud and told him that she had talked to Earl Wagner while she was there and asked the teacher, does Bud have what it takes to really be an actor? And he said, yes, he does. He has the tools. He just needs the discipline. And he actually does have a future if he wants it. So Dodie told him, listen, Bud, you could do this if you want to. You have the talent. But if you want it bad enough, you have to study. You really have to read and have a technique to follow. So this might be the real beginning of when he started to think, God, you know, I really don't do anything else well. I actually can do this. So maybe, just maybe, I'll be an actor. Okay. Bud... Read books by Kant and Schopenhauer. He tried to find the meaning of life. Used psychology a lot. Always analyzing others instead of himself. Constantly observing but not letting anyone close. I had mentioned earlier that Bud was behind in his studies at Shattuck. And uh, both of the academic programs from Libertyville High going to Shattuck were different. So he found himself two grades behind. So when he was a senior at Libertyville, he was going into Shattuck as a sophomore, which is ridiculous. I don't even know how that even works. So he was really behind. So at the end of his sophomore year, his grades were still bad. So going into summer, he would be going into his junior year the following year. Uh, his grades were still bad, so he decided to take summer school in order to go into his junior year. And also of note is the fact that he was on uh, he was on pace to break the demerits record at Shattuck. He had 244. He passed both of his summer school classes. Now, I took summer school because I wasn't a very good student either. And I got to tell you, summer school... Is a lot easier than the regular classes you take. But hey, he passed them and he was going into his junior year on a good note. And it showed, I guess, that his grades stayed pretty good. They weren't great, but they were good enough to keep on going and progress. And he also joined clubs. He was also an advisor at Whipple Hall, which meant that he, he had the ability to hand out the merits instead of getting them, which was a nice switch. Um, but he wasn't like that. So he looked out for the younger kids, and he also looked out for anybody that needed his help, anybody at all. So it showed a sign of Brando that he didn't like handing out the merits. He brought down the house in a production at Shattuck Academy. The audience knew they were seeing greatness. And because of this, you're going to see Marlon Brando or Bud become a little more cocky. He is gaining more confidence with every performance that he is in because I think it's sort of 
opening up his eyes that he's special in that way. Not only does he carry himself well, not only is he confident enough to pull off pranks and do that sort of thing, but he is also getting a little something extra from this acting thing. Something that he's really good at. People are praising him, which is something that Bud never had in his life. Aside from his good looks, he didn't offer anything else. Acting was doing that for him. People praised him endlessly on his performances. So you're going to see Marlon Brando become even more confident in other ways in his life because of acting. And one of the reasons why he will continue on with acting is because it is something good that he can do. Even though Bud was succeeding in the theater, it was decided that he would be kicked out of Shattuck Academy. Now, there was a big meeting. Uh, All the heads of the school got together and decided that it was in the best interest of the school mostly. Uh, I've done research on this, and from what I understand, this was a decision made for the betterment of the school and definitely not for Bud. And Marlon Sr. was very upset by this. He felt that he was kept out of the loop about his son's progression. Um, I didn't think that Senior knew the full extent of Mar- of Bud. Sorry, I keep wanting to call him Bud. Marlon Sr. didn't know exactly the extent of Bud's getting into trouble uh, at the school. I think the school wanted to keep that under wraps as much as possible. But it got to the point where they just couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take Bud's shenanigans, so to speak. And there was was an an inspection coming up during the end of the year. And they didn't trust Bud to toe the line. And they really wanted to do well in this inspection. And they felt it was in the best interest of the school to expel Marlon Brando Jr. So that's what happened. And one of the stories I'm going to end with Shattuck because there's so many stories at Shattuck uh, was uh, him stealing the the bell clapper I guess he got up and uh, carried this clapper it, it, it was heavy it, I think it was probably around 80 pounds it was not light and he carried it all the way down the bell the bell clapper he carried all the way down from the tower and buried it and the funny part is the next day, Bud was the one to get a team together to try to find out who stole the bell clapper. I think it's brilliant. But this is what we were that's what the school was dealing with with Bud. Is they just couldn't put up with him anymore. It, get this kid out of here. There's no way we're gonna pass this inspection with this kid around. It's just not gonna happen. So he was out. A senior was furious. He just did not know what to do with his son. He just, he got kicked out of two high schools. I mean, think about that. If I got kicked out of two high schools, my dad would have kicked my ass. I mean, there is no doubt about it. But the thing is, the way I was raised, I never would have been kicked out. I just would never have allowed myself or done anything bad enough to get myself kicked out of school. But Bud was, he was kicked out of school. So senior said, get a job. And that's what he did. Bud got a summer job laying tile and digging ditches. It was decided that he would attend the dramatic workshop um, because Dodie finally wore Senior down, just the way I wore my dad down a little bit. Like, you know, I want to go to New York City. I can't wait anymore. I got to go. So that's what Dodie did with Marlon Senior. She said, you know, Jocelyn, who was Bud's older sister, went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, the school I went to, and back then, it was really good school. Really good. Like, every, all the world popular actors went through there. Well, a lot of them did anyway. So she you know, graduated from there and was doing um, stage work. And she was making a name for herself. So Dodie said, listen, if Jocelyn can do it, so can Bud. He's got a lot of talent. Just let him go. So Senior gave in, caved in, said, fine, send him there. Uh, why not? What else is he going to do? I mean, I guess he's good at acting. Give it a shot. So Bud decided that that's a great idea too. 
But I want to go to the dramatic workshop instead of the academy. And one of the reasons why is because they did a lot more um, a lot more work. There was a lot more performances at the workshop than at the academy. Um, the, par- the parents thought that that would be a good idea, so they agreed. So Bud went to the dramatic workshop. Um, from what I gather, the parents sponsored him, which meant that he really didn't have to work while he went to school. Uh, New York was freedom, an outlet for exploration. Uh, the dramatic workshop alumni include Harry Belafonte, Shelley Winters, Ben Gazzara, and Tony Curtis. The workshop offered directing, design, writing, and radio. Gave courses taught on epic theater. Full-time students like Bud started at 10 a.m. and sometimes didn't get out until after midnight. So that's a that's a long day. When I went at the academy, we started actually at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we got out around 6. It was 4 hours. That's it. I mean, I could sleep in. I remember sleeping till noon. You know, rolling out of bed, getting a quick breakfast, and heading out the door. I mean, class started at 2, so it was no rush. And then it was over at 6, so I would be out. It'd still be daylight in the summer, you know? So, not like this. I mean, Bud was working hard 10 a.m. till sometimes after midnight. That's a long day. Uh, he was taking instructions in acting movement, makeup, dance, and voice and speech. Lectures were taught on art history, literature, and psychology. Um, it was noted that Bud had little ambition at first. I think he sort of just, just like his roles, it was said that he would take his time, get a feel for things. He would never just jump right in. He felt he had to feel things out. So he gave the impression that he had a little ambition. He struggled until four months into the, the school. Uh, he was performing in a play called Haniel's Way to Heaven. And in this production, people started to take notice. Here's a quote. He gave me chills. It was so good, so quiet, like the dawn of something great. It was like suddenly you woke up and your idiot child is playing Mozart, end quote. He was different on stage. It embarrassed him that he was exposing something. Stella Adler, his acting teacher, was the strongest influence on his life and career. She adopted him. Now, Bud dated her daughter, Ellen. He was at their house constantly. It was, a, it was a Jewish atmosphere, so there was instant education and sophistication in culture, something, especially the sophistication, that Bud lacked. Big misconception right here, and I really want to clarify this point. Bud being associated with the actor's studio is one of the biggest jokes I've ever heard. Okay, the actor studio, which I love the actor studio um, interviews with Lipton. I think they're great, but they showcase Brando like he went there and that's it. But that is not the case. Bud would always correct anyone that brought this up. He would say, no, I went to school with Stella. Stella Adler taught him how to read. He taught him to look at art and listen to music. She really expressed she put a lot of love into Bud. She showed him things that, well, not only, okay, you got to take this into consideration. When you go to a conservatory, uh, like an acting school or a music school, where the classes are more condensed, you are, you know, you're in a classroom with about 15 to 20 people. So you really yearn and you, and you come to want your teacher's respect. Getting attention from your teacher means the world to you. And Stella Adler was that teacher for Bud. She saw his greatness, and she's, oh my gosh, this is my pet project. This is going to be wonderful. She took him under her wing, and he ate it up. He's like, fine, take me in. Uh, teach me. Uh, and, and Bud was a sponge. Uh, she encouraged him to use complex personality. She gave him permission to go there. She said, Bud, it's okay. It's okay to go there. Uh, use your talent. Go that extra mile. You are capable of it. 
And what she expressed was, don't act. She concentrated on improv, and Bud excelled. Um, there was a, uh, an exercise where, and I did this too in acting school, where you would, um, it was a normal exercise, I would like to call it, where the teacher says, come in tomorrow, like your, you, you use the acting room as your space, like it's your apartment. I want you to come in the room. I want you to just be like you are in your apartment with nobody around. So I thought, well, man, this is going to be easy. Not just, you know, put my, I, I had, it was really funny. I had it all planned out. Like I wrote it down. I said, okay, I'm going to come in the room and this is bad. I'm going to come in the room. I'm going to throw my keys down. Okay. That should take about five seconds. And then I'm going to sit on the bed and take my shoes off. And that'll be about 10, 15 seconds. I'll take my time. And then I'll lay in the bed and like maybe I'll, you know, fix some stuff and, and then I'll turn the TV on and blah, blah, blah. I had it all planned out what I was going to do step by step by step because the teacher said he had to do this for like, you know, four or five minutes. So when I came in to do the routine, I got I did exactly everything step by step that I had written down in And I'm sure from the audience's point of view, it looks so fake. And that's exactly what it was. It, does, it shouldn't be planned out. It should all be moment to moment to moment. That's the whole point. Being spontaneous and having it come naturally. Making it look real. That's the whole point. It's being real. So these are the kind of exercises that Bud excelled in. He got that stuff. He felt comfortable in his surroundings, in his world. He, it's not easy to cut yourself off like that. Uh, another exercise that he did really well was the teacher said, okay, everybody, I want you to get up and I want you to be birds. So everybody's just sort of, you know, improving and being birds and pecking on the ground, whatever birds do, squawking, whatever. So then about five minutes into this exercise, the whole class being birds, the teacher screamed out, a nuclear bomb has just landed. So, the whole class is freaking out, right? Birds chirping everywhere, running around like their heads are cut off. Teachers looking around, seeing all the kids acting like complete morons. What's Bud doing? Absolutely nothing. He continued being a bird. Why? Because a bird doesn't know what a nuclear bomb is. Do they? I thought that's... It, it, and the teacher didn't have to tell him that. He just figured that out on his own. He, if there was one thing that he understood, it was simple, easy. Understanding dialogue, like it, it, a regular actor, it may take a regular actor to figure out a page of dialogue and its meaning. It could take him about an hour. For Bud, it could take a few minutes. You know, they're going over like, okay, why is this guy doing this? Why is my character doing that? And for Bud, sometimes it's just so simple. It's like, well, he was just hungry. And just like, what? What? It can't be that simple. Nah, but most of the time, it is. Stella told her peers that Bud would be the toast of Broadway and that he is, quote unquote, a genius. She claims, I taught him nothing. I opened up possibilities of thinking, feeling, experiencing. As I opened the doors, he walked on through. He is the most keenly aware human being alive. He's aware and he knows. He just knows. If you have a scar physically or mentally, he goes to it. He doesn't want to, but he can't be cheated or fooled. She told Bud to stop lying on stage and he stopped, just like that. Bud would be seen walking down 5th Avenue with an armful of books. When asked what he was doing with all of them, he exclaimed, I must read. I have to study. I must educate myself. I love this aspect of Bud. Important to note. Bud would disagree with one of his teachers while performing a scene and wasn't afraid to voice his opinion and displeasure. There was an honesty about him. Fellow students would have done anything to earn the pleasure of their teachers, even though we were struggling to find the same truthfulness. Bud was incapable of being anything he wasn't. He didn't show any outward signs of capitalizing on his talent and carve out a career.
His air of taking a few courses because he didn't have anything else to do was part of his prestige. While other students labored with acting, Bud showed no signs of effort. He was always ready, just like Mozart was always ready. His instinct made him a genius. He was in tune with attention to detail, extremely alert. He set himself apart from his classmates in the room, uh, sitting a bit off to the side. Always, he can see everything and study them. He was taking in everything. He was tuning his body, always strengthening his fingers and so on. Like He would take a pencil and he would use a pencil as an instrument to strengthen his fingers. Bud had a tough time reading Shakespeare, though. It, it's tough, period. I don't care what kind of an actor you are. If you're not brought up in that uh, the, that theater stage like they do in uh, you know England, like all those Shakespeare schools, you're gonna you're gonna struggle with that. I mean, it's just hard to read. But but he he took his time with it, you know. While others sort of read Shakespeare well, Bud didn't. But once he took his time, he had a beautiful voice. He really did have a nice speaking voice. Once he was confident enough with something, his voice would just come out real nice. While other students struggled with the meaning of the scene, this is where Bud flourished. Dodie and Senior separated again. Uh, Dodie moved to New York City and held court in a nice big flat downtown. So Bud was thrilled to have his mom in New York. Bud and his cronies camped out there. So Dodie was a floor show, always giving a performance. She was unlike any mother the others had ever seen. Dodie was still drinking and still carefree. Chaos was everywhere. She even went to a small church to attend AA meetings. Bud and Fran would go with her as well. They'd go downstairs for meetings for the kids with alcoholic parents. But by the time their meeting was over, they'd come back upstairs. She'd be gone. She loved her son and his genius, seeing it as a reflection of herself. She would be gone on one of her dis disappearances, and Bud would go into depression. Before she moved back to Chicago, Bud tried to get her to stay in New York with him. Bud revealed to his friend that back when he was 13 years old, he witnessed his father beating his mother once again, and he couldn't take it anymore. Now, the story is that he went, got the gun that was in the house, approached his father, pointed at him, and said, if you ever touch her again, I will kill you. After a brief stint in Summerstock performances, Bud returned to New York City with an agent offering to represent him. He was on his way to auditioning, and this is his quote, for some shit Broadway show. I remember Mama was the name of the show. His acting was so natural that audience members thought that a stagehand had accidentally walked on the stage. Harold Clerman, who was Stella Adler's husband at that time, had this to say about Brud. Here's his quote. He was just sort of an eat-and-run guy. While that he wasn't the conscious opportunist, he seemed to digest everything and assimilate nothing. He was a spoiled boy that was spoiling himself. He was self-destructive. He lacked moral fiber. That's a... Wow. That's the end of the quote. You're showing... I don't know if Harold had some reservations about Brando because he was sleeping with his wife, which I believe that to be true. I think that Bud was screwing everything in New York City. I don't, that's, that's just the way it was. He was a beautiful man, and he had a lot of talent, and people, you know, will say that. And he just had women crawling all over him. And he, you know, he enjoyed it, so he, he did. And... I guess that's just the way it is. And Stella Adler, I think, was one of those women. He took what he wanted, and she was one of them. So I'm thinking Harold may have had a little bit of resentment towards Marlon Brando because of the fact that he was screwing his wife. So that may have to play a part in that quote, lacking moral fiber and things like, you know, that self-destructive thing, he might have a point there. But I, there's, there's some negative things said there about Marlon Brando. Uh, Harold uh, didn't see real passion, and I think that really bothered him. Uh, he saw a guy just doing what pleased him, and that's where it ended.
Uh, his uh, Brando's next play was called Truckline Cafe. Now, Bud struggled with his mumbling, and the director got very frustrated and told everyone in the cast to leave except for Bud. He shouted and yelled at him, louder, 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 louder. And he told him, Bud, climb up the rope. There was a, hope hang- there was a rope hanging on stage, so he climbed up the rope, and then he come back down. He said, do it again. And he would climb up there and then come back down, do it again. And by the time he was coming down, Bud was so freaking pissed and at his boiling pot, and the, and the director said, okay, do the scene right now. And he did, and it was perfect. And then every night after that performance, he was brilliant. It got a standing ovation every night, and some saying the loudest ovation the theater has ever heard. The whole theater community went to see his performance and was being talked about as the hottest talent in town. After Truckline Cafe was Canada, then after that, a flag is born. It was a Jewish play, and Bud was happy to take the part. Ellen Adler, who was Stella's daughter, said that during one of his scenes, he had his back to the audience lifting up the flag with his shirt off, and his back was so expressive that she got on the subway after the performance and cried all the way home. Offstage, he revealed to a girlfriend of this time that he told me about his family and insecurities, such as being afraid of alcohol, of being taken by women of being made a fool of, of being a real mama's boy. He felt it was important to understand and include someone else's feelings, their presence. Bud had an entourage, and he never turned down helping a friend financially. He made himself the nucleus of his entourage. Now, you got to understand at this time, he was making a lot of money. When you're in a Broadway show, he got paid handsomely, so he had money to throw around. And this was just great, especially for all those entourage people. They just loved that. Bud had no problem paying for meals, for people's rent, for abortions, things like that. And he really got people to depend on him, and he loved it. He was the giver, the untouchable, mysterious, and all-important center. Here's a quote from Brando about making friends. Here's the quote. I go about it very gently. I circle around and around. I circle. Then gradually I come nearer. Then I reach out and touch them. Ah, so gently. Then I draw back. Wait a while. Make them wonder. At just the right moment, I move in again. I touch them. Circle. They don't know what's happening. Before they realize it, they're all entangled, involved. I have them. And suddenly... Sometimes, I'm all they have. A lot of them, you see, are people who don't fit anywhere. They are not accepted. They've been hurt, crippled in one way or another. But I want to help them, and they can focus on me. I'm the Duke, sort of the Duke of my domain. End quote. Bud acted like he was in touch with something beyond the senses, as if he held to keys to life's secrets. Bud's sex life was astounding, All sorts of women, they all shared the same superficial personality. All of his seductions were gentle. He had a soft touch, and he made the girl feel like she was the only person on the planet. But he had the inability to accept love or trust women. He had a tendency to destroy the things he loved, to turn on those people who cared about him. Bud was not the first choice to play Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire. John Garfield was the first choice. Jessica Tandy was slated to take on the character of Blanche. Leah Kazan, who directed A Streetcar Named Desire, was an actor himself, years ago, and understood how to tame them. But at first struggled with this role. He would spend sleepless nights just pacing the stage. He eventually brought a cot into the theater. He needed reassurance and nurturing. He got comfortable with many members of the cast, and you can actually hear him laughing. He was having a good time in the theater. Bud had always had a hearty appetite. And one day, he gave himself an acting exercise. I like this one. You know, the whole cast was eating their meal, and Bud ordered one of his favorite things, a burger and fries. So he sat there, put in front of him, and stared at it, not eating. He was denying himself food to see where his juices would take him. See, you know, Bud was playing the character's subtext. So he sat there 
and he just, you know, salivated at the fact that there was this juicy burger sitting in front of him and all the other castmates are eating their meals because they're starving and he sat there and his stomach growled and he took it in and he used that. He remembered what it was like to just be so hungry and to just want that hamburger so bad and he used it in his acting. Pure method acting. That's what Brando did. Stanley Kowalski was the name of the character he played in A Streetcar Named Desire and eventually he became Stanley. Bud was so good that the meaning of the play had been altered. Bud's performance had shifted the play's balance. Bud was the star of the show. Now, I had, gosh, I've seen A Streetcar Named Desire, you know, probably about 10 times. You know, the one that Brando did, of course, on screen. But I had never seen it on stage until recently. I went and saw a college production of A Streetcar Named Desire just at the beginning of the summer with my wife. It was a date night, and she's like, you know, A Streetcar Named Desire is playing at um, Cleveland State. I said, no, shit. I would love to see that. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So I've always been interested to see a college production would be great. And I got to see how Stanley was played by somebody else and how they did it. And just the play itself. And you could see the way that it should have been written. Tennessee Williams wanted Blanche to be the star of that show. And she should be. That is her play. And I saw it as clear as day that that night. That Blanche was a central character. I mean, her dialogue, my gosh, 80% of that play is all Blanche. I couldn't imagine learning all those lines. That's That had to be difficult. So... It goes to show you just how good Brando was because he was so amazing in that role that people just wanted to see him. And he shifted the whole aspect, the whole meaning of that play. He was that good. He was overriding Blanche. He was becoming the star of the show, and it shouldn't be that way. The Broadway debut had several curtain calls and a half an hour of applause. Tennessee Williams even got on the stage himself and gave a curtain call. And when Brando took a bow, the house caved in. He created not only a standard of acting, but a style. He was uncomfortable with fame. He didn't understand it. He was so into himself that it wasn't until about two months into Streetcar's run that it finally dawned on him what was actually going on. He woke up one morning and realized that he was sitting on a pile of candy. He was cocky as ever, and when he visited home after the success of Streetcar, he flaunted it. He was rude, and Dodie feared he would blow it because things were falling into his lap, so to speak. He was screwing everything in sight. Senior was happy, Bud was making a nice living, but often quipped, he will never understand what this kid is all about. Bud experienced enormous anxiety issues. He had rage. He feared his heart would give. Also afraid he was going to hurt someone physically. Performance after performance weighed on him. Bringing that reality to life every night gave him fatigue and he began to dislike the theater. He signed a two-year contract when he started A Streetcar Named Desire and is estimated that he gave over 500 performances. He broke his nose during a show and came on stage bleeding everywhere. The break of the nose altered it, and forever it was crooked, and he loved it. He loved the change. Bud's involvement with the actor's studio was sporadic. He often said he went there as a means to get laid. He walked into the actor's studio with what he had, and he left with the same thing. Bud going to acting school at the studio was like sending a tiger to jungle school. Screen tested for Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, James Dean would eventually go on to immortalize that role. But uh, you know, a few years before that, um, Brando actually tried out for that, that movie. They just, for some reason, the movie fell through and it got made later on with Dean. Which is brilliant. I don't know. I, as much as I love Bud, I gotta tell you, James Dean nailed that role. I mean, I I couldn't even see Marlon Brando doing that as good. I just can't. And we're going to talk about Dean 
I don't know if it's going to be after Brando, but eventually we will. He's coming soon. Finished with his responsibilities in regards to streetcar, Bud put everything on hold and went to Paris. He needed a break. After 500 performances of live shows on Broadway, beating his chest the way he did with Stanley Kowalski, he was ready for a break. He was going to lose his mind. So he decided to go ahead and just live in Paris for a while. And he did for a few months. Uh, he practiced mime on the streets of Paris, and he lost himself. He, made, he really did need that break. And uh, before returning to America, he made a trip to Italy as well. Uh, he lay down in a field of flowers and fell into a dream of paradise. There was, at this point, he says that that was the only moment of perfect happiness he had ever known. Uh, first Hollywood film was called The Men. Uh, he lived like a par- paraplegic man for an extended period of time, uh, and he would live in his wheelchair. He just wanted to do it right. Um, a drunk lady came into the bar one night uh, while they were shooting this movie. And because he was so into the role, he was in his wheelchair, of course, just like all the other men that were paraplegic. So there were about five or six men in wheelchairs, and Bud was one of them. So this lady comes in off the street drunk. And she saw the men in the wheelchairs and started to extend her healing powers over them. Oh, you know, I'm going to heal you and you're going to walk again. Blah, blah, blah. Being drunk and being stupid. So Bud encouraged the woman to continue what she was doing with her healing, so to speak. Uh, She... (laughs) I like this. So she went up to him and started doing her little thing like, oh, you know, I'm going to, you know, save you and I'm going to make you walk and God bless you. And so, and so Bud slowly rose from his chair and then started doing a dance in the middle of the bar and she like freaked out and ran out of the bar. And so it was a nice little story. Um, but the, the rumor was out. Bud refused to play the role of conventional star. He wasn't your run-of-the-mill guy, of course. So, you know, he slept on people's couches. He didn't want to do interviews. You know, they made him feel uncomfortable. And so he was just classified as a different kind of guy. Um, The Men was a a success and saw the first screening with his sister, Jocelyn. Uh, I guess he sat in the front row, slouched over. And as soon as he saw himself on screen, he turned around like a little boy and said, Oh, my gosh, look, sister, that's me up there. Look, it's me. Um... Bud bought his parents a home with his earnings. Uh, He would also send portions of his wages to Senior. He wanted Senior to invest his money. I think he just felt good giving his dad money. I don't think he gave a rat's ass what he did with it, to be quite honest with you, because Bud was pretty much rolling in money right now. But he gave a portion of his salary to Senior to say, "Hey, hey, old man, here's some money. Do something with it if you want. Sort of like, yeah, I'm just throwing money at you kind of make him made him feel pretty good uh Doty eventually quit drinking and streetcar named desire the film was his second film uh vivian lee was the star and she was in gone with the wind she played blanche instead of jessica tandy uh he ripped off the marlon brando sign of his room this is funny bud ripped off the sign that you put on your dressing room door where it said Marlon Brando, well, he tore that off and he replaced it with, <laughs> please do not disturb, I'm sleeping. Signed, me. I like that. Uh, he played the role differently with Vivian at the lead um, as opposed to Jessica Tandy. Well, he had to. He played off of the the actress, the character. You know, he was real. So his performance was a little different in the movie in regards to, you know, the stage play. Uh Bud wanted to have sex with Vivian Lee so badly, he says, in quote, my, my teeth ached. But her husband, Lawrence Olivier, was always around like a guard dog. Um, the streetcar role garnered him his first Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. He was now a bona fide movie star. And that is where we're going to end part one of Marlon Brando, because we're getting to, we're going to get juicier with his... Uh, performances and movies, and then maybe dive into other things as well. So, whew, yeah, that was a lot of information. I try to fit in as much as I could, um, and I find myself talking faster than maybe I should, so I apologize if it's hard to keep up. Sometimes I just sort of ramble, and I, and I don't catch up to myself. 
sort of. So I apologize for that, but I hope you enjoyed that aspect of learning more about Marlon Brando. I know I did. I find him fascinating because he's one of those actors I look up to because he's so great to watch. Um, I want to go ahead and take this time to thank anybody who is listening. And please, please subscribe. Tell your friends that this guy's talking about Marlon Brando. He's going to be talking about a bunch of other different actors and movies and maybe even other stuff you may be interested in. So please subscribe. Tell your friends. Leave reviews. Do all that good stuff. Visit Facebook, uh, Twitter page, uh, website, everything you got to do. Please help me out. Give comments. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. That is going to end episode number two. Next episode, number three, will be Marlon Brando, part two. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.